Today's read will be from The Browder File, Volume 2, Survival Strategies for Africans in America, 13 Steps to Freedom by Anthony T. Browder. Infants are beings with unlimited possibilities who are born into the world ready to experience all of the joy and wonder that life has to teach them. They learn to walk, talk, and think by watching and imitating those closest to them. Their home is the first environment that shapes their fragile personalities. What they learn in this setting often determines how they see themselves and how they relate to the world and everything in it. All infants go through this basic rite of passage which ultimately helps to shape their future. There was a time in the distant past when those responsible for overseeing the development of youth knew that they were spiritual beings who had taken on human form and had special roles to play in life. They were taught that their thoughts words and deeds reflected their understanding of their mission in life. Thus, their perceptions of themselves determined their ability to live up to their potential as human beings. Unfortunately, this blueprint for human development has been unavailable for generations of Africans living in America. Their perceptions of themselves, who they are, and who they are to become have been distorted by the society in which they live. As a result, they have been conditioned to believe that they must go outside of themselves in order to find reality. The only way out of this dilemma is for people to learn to reach within and nurture those timeless perceptions of self, which will help them construct a new reality. Step three, perception precedes being. You are who you believe you are. As African Americans, we must never forget that our ancestors were compelled by the letter of the law and the force of the whip to accept the ideas and beliefs imposed on them by their so-called masters. They were forbidden from expressing their own thoughts and perceptions of the world and were forced to accept the beliefs and behaviors deemed appropriate for them. These steps were taken to ensure the continuation of slavery from one generation to the next. Such social engineering manufactured culturally deficient clones generation after generation over the last four centuries. Each successive generation was infected from the time of conception with an ingrained cultural virus that was designed to prevent them from reaching their fullest potential. But within the soul of African Americans was an unwavering spirit that refused to be dominated. This spirit nurtured a belief in a receptive host. 
that there was much more to life than enslavement, poverty, and ignorance. As this spirit grew, the chains of mental bondage slackened, and the consciousness of the enslaved Africans began to expand. Those who nurtured this spirit achieved a state of mental freedom that allowed them to grow beyond the confines of negrodom. They scaled the walls of coloredness, found their way through the blackness, and ultimately rediscovered the African spirit that resided in the center of their souls. Like Harriet Tubman, these brave ancestors ventured back into the danger zone in an attempt to liberate those who remained mentally and physically enslaved to a way of life not of their own design. Freeing the body also meant freeing the mind, and over time, the formerly enslaved Africans had to be brought into the light of consciousness. They were taught the value of knowing their true names and reminded that only dogs and slaves were named by their masters. The lessons were simple and yet very profound. They were taught that there was no such thing as a Negro, that the name and the concept were fabrications of the European mind. They were reminded of the time in the 15th century when Portuguese sailors kidnapped a group of West Africans and took them to Portugal. When the Africans settled in this new and strange land, they were called Negroes by their enslavers. This name was a pejorative reference to the blackness of their skin. It has no reference to the home of their birth. In the centuries that followed, many European nations developed an appetite for stolen land in the New World, which necessitated a vast labor force to work the land. Since the European aristocracy and the agents of their god, their popes, priests, and ministers already regarded Negroes as a race of subhuman, soulless savages, they designated them ideal candidates for permanent enslavement. The European enslavement of Africans, Negroes, was unlike any previous form of slavery. Without fear of civil or religious reprisals, Europeans condemned Africans to a life of hell on earth. This scenario set the stage for centuries of kidnappings, murders, and unspeakable atrocities committed against an inestimable number of Africans. Because of the painful and unresolved memories of our past, many African Americans who continue to encourage their sisters and brothers to remember the struggles of their ancestors are frequently told by others to get over slavery 
and forget the past, we must be ever mindful that there has never been a culture that achieved greatness by separating itself from its past. History has shown that wherever culturally centered people traveled throughout the world, they knew that the retention of their language, culture, philosophy, laws, and God concepts were essential to their survival. The Europeans, who were expelled from Great Britain and forced to seek refuge in North America, attempted in every conceivable way to replicate the culture they left behind. To them, the new world was to be an extension of the world they left behind. They named the territories New York, New Jersey, and New Hampshire after York, Jersey, and Hampshire in jolly old England. Centuries later, the eastern seaboard of the United States is still referred to as New England, and the unofficial language of the United States is also called English, out of respect for the Anglo-Saxon past that is rooted in English culture. No sane people willingly turn their backs on their past. It is only by facing your past that you can accurately perceive reality and determine your destiny. Reality is a pathway to the future, but if that pathway becomes blocked or is partially obscured, then one is destined to wander aimlessly until the old pathway is found or a new one is forged. African Americans cannot expect to have a sustainable future if we believe we are something that never existed. To that end, the European created Negro consciousness must die and we must learn to perceive ourselves in a context which is defined by a new consciousness and not color. A similar death knell should be sounded for the perceptions related to the term color because every person, with the exception of albinos, is colored. We all possess melanin in our skin that protects us from the harmful effects of the sun and gives our skin varying shades of color. The darker your skin, the more melanin it possesses and the more pigment it produces. This is a basic biological process that is essential for life. Those who live in Africa, a continent whose midsection straddles the equator, and is heavily saturated with sunlight are blessed with darkened skin. This genetic trait has been passed on throughout the millennium to the descendants of Africa who now inhabit more temperate regions of the globe. When African people ruled the earth thousands of years ago, black skin was a badge of honor. The color black was associated with God and various aspects of divinity. Asar, the resurrected God King of ancient Kemet, was referred to as Lord of the Perfect Black, and the black soil from which he was resurrected was considered sacred. Even the ancient Greeks considered blackness divine. The word melanin 
is derived from the Greek word melons, which means black. Melons is derived from the words el, meaning black, and an, which is derived from a similar word, amene, which refers to amon, or amen, ancient words for God. Yes, there was a time thousands of years ago when black was not only beautiful, but it was also considered divine by all people who possessed within their skin the black presence of God. In this respect, everybody was considered colored and some more so than others. It was only after the consciousness of the world was turned upside down that the color and blackness became associated with evil and filth and its antithesis, whiteness, became the metaphor for things good, clean, and holy. When you think of the synonyms linking blackness with things evil, negative, dirty, or derogatory, a barrage of words and perceptions will flood your consciousness. Black male, black ball, black list, black death, black plague, black sheep, the list goes on and on. A black lie is a dirty lie, but a little white lie is acceptable. Even food reinforces negative concepts if you buy into the perceived stereotypes. Black cake is called devil's food cake and white cake is called angel's food cake. White is angelic, clean and pure, while black is portrayed as dirty and unholy. If you are aware of these perceptions, you will find that they are quite frequently used in the media, as the following examples illustrate. Since its early beginnings, Benetton, the Italian clothing company has run an often controversial advertising campaign that utilizes the slogan, The United Colors of Benetton. Most of their ads depict the two extremes of the racial spectrum, black people and white people, united in their desire for world peace and in their effort to promote Benetton clothing. Around 1992, Benetton produced an ad which, like all the others which preceded it, was prominently displayed on billboards, bus stops, and in publications throughout the United States. This particular ad was a simple photograph of two children, a very angelic-looking white child with golden locks like Shirley Temple's standing next to a black child whose hair was cut into the shape of devilish horns. The subliminal implications and motivation for this photograph were quite clear and intentional. The horns suggest the black child was evil, and the flowing hair of the white child suggests she was divine. In another ad produced by ABC Television, a similar message was depicted. In the promotionals for a short-lived program, about two sisters entitled Good and Evil, the good sister was dressed in white, and her evil sister was dressed in black. In the logo type for the show, 
The word good was written in white letters on a black background with a halo letter, a halo over the letter G. The word evil was written in black letters on a white background. There were horns protruding from the top of the letter E and a tail extending from the letter L. Was this just a random coincidence or part of an ongoing effort to link blackness with the devil while associating whiteness with things that are good and heavenly? There are those who sometimes accuse me of being paranoid or too black and obsessed with finding racist conspiracies in anything that offends me. I must admit that I am sensitive to such issues because of my background, but I cannot find offensive material where it does not already exist. However, it does fill my heart with great pleasure when I am able to prove a point with crystal clarity, particularly to those who are closest to my heart, like my family. I had such an occasion several years ago when our family threw a surprise birthday party for my mother. My mom received well wishes from numerous people who were unable to attend her party, including a card from a couple she had known for over 25 years. As fate would have it, this couple happened to be European Americans and the card they sent was an extremely poor attempt at black humor. It featured a photograph of an obese black transvestite with horns protruding from its hair, wearing a black dress and holding a black pitchfork. The inside of the card read, Welcome to Birthday Hell, and was accompanied by a handwritten note which read, This is a terrible card for such a great occasion, but the devil made us do it. Needless to say, the card was considered tasteless and offensive to all who saw it, and it was the low point of an otherwise wonderful day. My mother was at a loss to explain why her friends would send such a distasteful card. I reminded her that was how they have been programmed to see us, and they probably didn't give it a second thought. I am quite sure they would never consider sending a similar card to any of their European friends. I am often reminded of the saying, it matters not how others see me. What matters most is how I see myself. Thus, I realize that perceptions are critically important for African Americans who live in a society where the very color of our skin is considered evil and dirty. This misconception has had a devastating effect on our psyche for far too long. If we make a conscious decision to refer to ourselves as black, then we must continually strive to restore dignity to blackness. We must do so by never referring to blackness or black people in a demeaning way. Any word that denigrates black people must be stricken from our consciousness, stricken from our thoughts, and stricken from our vocabulary. We must conduct ourselves in a manner that will create a new definition of blackness in the minds of all people. This consciousness must be instilled in the minds of our youth, and they 
must be taught to realize that they are representatives of all black people. We cannot afford to allow our youth to do their own thing. They must be guided by conscious and committed adults who strive to uplift African people. One of the most striking depictions of blackness in film appeared in Spike Lee's movie, Malcolm X, in the scene where a young incarcerated Malcolm is encouraged to look up the definition of the words black and white in the prison dictionary. As the camera pans the definitions, the words fill the screen and Malcolm's mind is jolted into a state of reality. It is a dramatic moment which impresses upon the viewer the power of the English language and the power of the media. Relive this moment by viewing the film and watching the scene at least three times. Afterwards, go to a library and secure the definitions of these same words, black and white, from at least six different dictionaries. I would recommend the larger volumes because they will have more detailed definitions and list a greater number of synonyms. Once you have compiled these definitions, read them daily for a week and ingrain them in your memory. During the course of that week, make it a point to avoid any negative references to blackness in your thoughts or speech. Just for fun, try interchanging these concepts when conversing with others. For example, use the word white male instead of black male and notice the reaction. Never refer to a light-skinned person as fair-skinned. Webster defines fair as light in color, not dark or dusky, pleasing to the eye, attractive, lovely or beautiful, free from stain, blemish, or serious defect. Thus, when you refer to a light-skinned person as fair-skinned, you automatically denigrate those of a darker hue. When you begin to change your perceptions of blackness, you are then in a greater position to influence the perceptions of others. In most instances, you will find that creating positive perceptions will help to establish more favorable thoughts and actions and change your behavior for the better. As you modify your thoughts and behavior, you will begin to attract people of a similar mind. And the references and suggested readings start out with author Naeem Akbar, title, Breaking the Chains of Psychological Slavery, Tallahassee, Florida, Mind Productions and Associates, 1996. Author Tony Brown, title, Black Lies, White Lies, The Truth, According to Tony Brown, New York, William Morrow & Co., 1995. Author Farai Chidea, title, Don't Believe the Hype, Fighting Cultural Misinformation About African Americans, New York, Penguin Books, 1995.